Want to bet? Yep. Then get into the action at Sports Interaction. Whatever your sport, Sports Interaction has you covered. Bet pregame, in-game, or on one of the many unique prop bets. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash SDBN. Or in Ontario, download the app now using our QR code at the bottom of the screen. 19 plus, please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. We've got a great show today, Adam. We sure do, Alan. A uh, bit of a, uh, um, for me at least, intimidating guest, but somebody who I watched when, like, from the moment I was a little boy onwards. So we have on uh, today uh, Steve Eiserman, mm-hmm. and let's do a little in- introduction and and get right into it. Okay. Uh, Steve Eisenman was drafted fourth overall in the 1983 NHL draft. He became captain of the Detroit Red Wings at 21 years of age. Uh, he's seventh all-time in points in NHL history. He's a four-time Stanley Cup winner, three times as a player, and one time as an executive. Um, he was the winner of the Consmite Trophy as playoff MVP inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2009 after a 22-year career in the NHL. He played in the 1998 and 2002 Olympics, representing Canada, winning a gold medal in 2002. Later on in his life, he was GM of Team Canada in the Olympics in 2010 and 2014, uh, winning gold both times. After retiring in 2006 uh, from the NHL, he became the um, executive vice president and alternate governor um, of Detroit, uh, moving on to Tampa in 2010, taking on a Tampa Bay team uh, near the bottom of the standings and building them up uh, to where they became a legitimate uh, Stanley Cup contender in 2015. He was named NHL GM of the year and somewhat as a surprise in 2018, stepped down from Tampa as GM just as they were about to go on a two-year Stanley Cup run and another year to the finals, returning to Detroit where he was named general manager in 2019 to where he remains in that position today. Let's give a big welcome to the Agent Provocateur podcast to Steve Eiserman. So here we are today with Steve Eiserman, uh, another episode of Agent Provocateur. As everyone knows, Steve is the uh, general manager and executive vice president of the Detroit Red Wings. And uh, Steve, an area that I'd really like to focus on and talk to you about is the process of a elite player like you uh, coming towards the end of a superlative 22-year career in the NHL and looking at life after hockey as a player. And, and obviously, you've had an a amazing career also in management uh, with Team Canada, two gold medals, uh, Olympic gold medals and uh, with your time in Detroit, then Tampa and back to Detroit. So 
Can you tell us a little bit about when, as a player, you started thinking about becoming a general manager? Um, yeah, pro- I think I retired at the age of 40. Uh, probably, uh, you know, around the age of 30, started thinking about what I would want to do uh, post-playing. I always uh, I always had an interest in not only hockey, but all sports have uh, followed every sport. Uh, always intrigued by trades and drafts and, and whatnot, following the business of sports. And as I got older, started to think about what do I want to do? Uh, ultimately, I knew I'd stay in hockey because sadly, I don't really have much uh, else to fall back on. Um, and my interests were really in hockey. You know, I like the sport, being involved in the sport, been around it my whole life. Um, so then it became as I got older, you know, do I want to get into coaching? Do I want to get into management? I used to spend a lot of time even going back to when I was drafted with Jim Devolano, who was the GM who drafted me in Detroit back in 83. And we used to talk a lot about hockey and uh, about what was going on in the league. He'd share with me a lot of his thoughts and 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 happenings. And then as when Kenny Holland and now I'm sure you de- dealt with Kenny over the years, he's he was a great uh, mentor and a great resource. And you know, he was our GM. Took over as the GM in the in '97 in Detroit. And he and I used to talk about everything going on, not only our team but but around the league about hockey players. I'd pick his brain on things. And uh, um, as I got closer to the end of my career, I felt like, you know what, I'm going to stay in the game. Uh, plan is I want to stay with the Red Wings. They had suggested you finish your career. You come and join us in management. And what role, what capacity, we'll figure that out at the time. So, um, you know, I knew pretty much towards the end of my career I was going to get involved. I had decided, you know, I would prefer to be in management Um uh, as opposed to coaching, I really say if I'm going to coach, I got to go somewhere and start coaching, whether that's in uh, midget hockey, junior hockey. That's a tough position to be in uh, as a coach. And I would want some experience. And uh, I didn't you know, I wanted to stay in the Detroit area and be local with my family. And I thought management was more intriguing, which role in management. I really wasn't sure at that time. So I heard that uh, from some of the people in Detroit back then in management that as a player, you would you would sit with some of the people like Kenny, like Jimmy Nill, and and ask questions like, "How do you put a scouting staff together? What are you looking for in scouts?" And I find that fascinating that a player, you know, um, in your in your position would be looking into those areas of of management. What kind of lessons were you learning back then by just picking their brain about the decisions they were making in real time? Uh, yeah, you know, it, I found it, you know, as a player, um, we, like, you, you really, you have good insight into the players in the league. You know, the teams you're playing against these guys, you have a really good idea of what's going on in the NHL, but uh, you know, our scouts would pop into town uh, when we had meetings or when you got on playoff runs, they would come in. I didn't really know like how things were done. Um, and again, as I got in closer to the end of my career, you wonder about things, a trade would be made. And I got a chance to sit down with Kenny, Jim Nill at the time, even Ryan Martin, who took over uh, when the, the salary cap came in, he, he came in. And, you know, we used to sit a lot at lunch, we'd share uh, in the same room. And you, you know, you've got a chance sometimes simply to sit with them and pick their brain on it. But again, I just found it fascinating. A trade was made. All these things were coming up on our trade deadline, how things were done, why they were done. I'd have my perspective and my opinion on this, why, what I thought of it. 
and pick their brains and get just get mostly I like hockey, you know, Alan, honestly, and it was just talk about the game. We could sit there for hours and talk about the game. And as I got closer to my end of my career and then when I really got into retired in my first four years uh, in retirement was really about education. I, I found it like really interesting uh, to sit in on July 1, a free agency to talk to Kenny about his planning in the offseason, to, you know, how they, even Jimmy Nill, how he was putting together his draft lists at his scouting meetings. These were all things I was never a party to um, right. and really didn't know how they got done. And uh, and it was eye-opening to see, like, um, why things were done. And it isn't as simple as as we all thought it was uh, as players to, to, to get things done. From, uh, from, from my perspective on this side, representing players, uh, the one thing that I've always been really surprised uh, about in talking with general managers around the league is they know their own team better than anybody, bar none. But many times I talk with GMs and you come to realize they don't really know the rest of the league that well because games are going on and it's hard to watch games when you're playing uh, every other night or back-to-back. -back. There aren't a lot of nights where you can sit there and watch games. And, and a lot of your information as a GM is probably coming to you from pro scout reports or the time that you can spend um, um, you know, catching up on certain players. But it's amazing how GMs have mastered the their own teams down to players who they've drafted and are up to date on everything. And many times I have been talking to other GMs and have heard back, um, where, where is he at now, that guy? What team's he on? And, and you know, in all my discussions with you over the many, many years that, that we've worked together, you, you know, your knowledge of players around the league is second to none. So that is something that you must really take pride in and work on is keeping up to date and what's going on around the league as well. I try to. You're, 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 you are really correct, Alan, in that saying we, we, well, we like to think we know our own team really well. I can tell you every time we sit down at a, you know, uh, at a game, at one of our games, I sit there and we, before the game we say, okay, let's talk about the other team. Who are their pending UFAs? Like, let's keep an eye on them. And the game goes by, and at the end of the game we say, what would you think of this guy or that guy? And I'm like, geez, I didn't really pay attention to him because you're, you're so focused on your own team. You're watching the, you know, really watching the play. Um, it's hard to get away from watching your team. What I like to do, what I really like to do, and it's the best part of the job as is watching games. You know, I think you know, for all of us, we love, we're in it, we're in it because we ultimately love watching hockey. And so what I really like to do is go to games, whether it's NHL games, junior games, or minor league team play, uh, and, and simply watch. And if you're not watching your own team, um, that's the best way to, to get to know the other players on the team. Because as well as I think I know the league, uh, until they're until you, you you know you trade for this player or you sign this player and he's out there there's always some part of his game good or bad they say geez I didn't realize he was this or that he's he's much faster than I thought he's he's much more physical or he can't quite do this so um you know there's always something going on during the hockey season there's a game every night of the week and I try to you know see all the obviously as many Detroit games as we can 
try to get to Grand Rapids as much as I can. And then you're kind of weighing, do I want to go see a, you know, maybe with our amateur scouts to see a junior game or, or whatnot, but we really focus on our own team and, you know, every night I'm getting older now, I used to be able to watch our game and go home and watch the late game. I don't watch many of those late games anymore. So it's really important to, again, to surround yourself with a really good pro scouting staff, a really good amateur staff, and then really learn to trust their judgment and get their advice uh, or their guidance on who's a good fit for us. And then ultimately jointly decide, okay, not only are they a good fit for us, what do we have to do to acquire them in trade or, or as a free agent, what's the contract? Does the contract make sense as well for that type of player? So it's really important that you have a good staff around you and, and, and then really, really rely on them because you can't do uh, Everything's happening so fast uh, um, throughout the course of the season and you can't be in two places at once and good. good we're at once. But the good thing is there's so much access to video. Now you can watch games at all different leagues, but it's still not the same as, as actually being there in person. So to your point, you need, really need to rely on a good staff to, to, to make your decisions. I heard the uh, car rides between Detroit and Grand Rapids with uh, you and Kenny and Jim uh, and Ryan uh, a little bit later on yeah. were, uh, were, were quite the experience. That, Honestly, uh, literally yeah, both ways loved back them. and forth. Loved them. You know, um, that's where I, you know, that's where I really got to talk about things. You know, one, we'd have uh, Sirius on, on the radio. We got to listen to Espo and uh, on Sirius XM and what was going on around the league. Um, uh, but yeah, I just literally, you know, Ryan, Ryan, myself, uh, uh, Kenny, Jimmy, Nill, and our varying uh, groups of us would back and forth two hours and 15 minutes to GR. For me, it was a great chance to sit in the back and, uh, and, and just, just ask a lot of questions, pick their brain, uh, see, you know, watch them go into the locker room and GR after the game to, to, to talk to the players, the coaches, and then and then coming home after to, to how they evaluated the game and and whatnot uh, and you know their decision making. So one it was a lot of fun. You you know those guys as well. Great sense of humor, really down to earth people. Um, but for me as a as as an up and comer, really like uh, 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 inclusive in that they they you know I was welcome and everything. Um, you know uh, was able to ask questions and also you know they they you know get my opinion on it from somebody from like a completely inexperienced from coming in totally from a different position. And uh, again, it was really eye-opening for me uh, um, on the management side of things. It, and again, I, I really enjoyed it and found it intriguing. Um, and that's why I kind of continued on and got that bug to like, Hey, I really want to run my own team or manage my own team and kind of make some of these decisions and do some things. And I say that, I say it's probably not, it was a lot easier sitting in the back seat running the team than it is sitting in the front seat running the team. <laughs> uh, Adam? Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that, uh, Steve, just that, because I, I imagine you're sitting in there with, you know, a management group that's got multiple Stanley Cups and you were a part of them on the ice. And so that first meeting you step into, do you say anything at all? I feel like first day at work would still be intimidating uh, yeah. because it's such a different facet of the game. Absolutely. I think right when I first retired, one of the meetings that I sat in was uh, 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 with our amateur scouting staff, Jimmy Nill, um, running it, and it was the uh, John Tavares draft. And I, I, we weren't uh, we weren't picking up high and all that, but 
I remember them talking, debating in the draft uh, in their order, and they started right at the top. Okay, who's number one? Who's number two? Edmund, uh, I think it was Matt Duchesne, Edmund, and uh, and Johnny T, uh, JT were the top three guys at that time. And everybody, they went around the table asking everybody, what's your opinion? And who's one? Who's one? And it got to me, and it was like, who's one? And I like I was like, I didn't know what to say. I was like, God, I, I don't have an answer here. And that was my my first experience in that uh <laughs> Yeah, being put on the spot here, I got to say something. I got to make a decision. So, um, uh, again, it was uh, uh, it just you, you learn a lot. Um, you, you learn how to make decisions, you know, that you have to make decisions. And uh, uh, that but that was one of the first thing I saw of was, like, oh, boy, like if I had the first pick here, which one of these guys am I going to take? Like one, you don't want to be wrong. Ultimately, you decide, you know what? I don't know which one's going to be better. And I learned like it's like just make sure you get a good player. And and right. and you can't predict who's going to be in five years, who's going to be a more valuable player. Just make sure you get a really good player. Was your answer Victor Hedman, though? <laughs> you know what I said? I, I think this was a cop out, but I said I was real smart. You know, I, I'm like, we're going to trade the pick. And that's oh. what I said. And, and I think Jim, Jim Mill, like he politely, he looked at me. Joe McDonnell was there who's with him in Dallas now. I know what they were thinking. They're like, like yeah whatever steve like uh you know i'm like hey like i'm not sure like let's trade the pick and get multiple picks and and that's what I, that was my answer at the time so and i'm like was i waffling or didn't want to but i'm like yeah easier said than done you got to go up there and make a pick and announce first overall and you're trading that pick one you got to have a partner and two boy oh boy that's a that's a that's a risky move so again <laughs> i uh look it's easy to say looking back now you'd be thrilled with either one but at the time i think that was my answer Love Easy it. to say. Love it. Can you walk us through a typical day as a GM? Um, yeah, like yeah, I mean, every day is different. I'd like to tell you, you know, I, I say, hey, I'm in the office at nine and I leave at five or whatnot. It depends, you know, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of travel. Like I, one thing you always have to be available. Same thing for you, Alan, is like, you know, that day you put your phone away for the day and say, hey, I'm going to do something, whatever it is. That's the day everything hits the fan, right? And it's like, so you just have to be accessible. I wouldn't say it's it's not a nine to five uh, uh, Monday to Friday job. Um, you don't have, you know, your summers off. Um, there's times when you're incredibly busy throughout the season. And then there's times when you're, you're really kind of doing nothing other than watching hockey games and you're, 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 uh, um, you just have to be accessible when, you know, a player gets injured, uh, whatnot. Uh, so, you know, for me, like, uh, you know, we're in Washington, D.C. today. Um, I came in yesterday. The team was out in Seattle. I watched the game. I, I made it, got up early, flew home for the day uh, in Detroit, flew back in yesterday morning. Uh, you know, the, uh, like today, sitting on the road, you get up in the morning, you check your emails. Uh, you know, there wasn't any late night scores last night. Uh, uh, get up, try to get a little bit of a workout in, trying to stay reasonably healthy. And then, uh, you know, I didn't bother going to morning skate today. I've been on the phone talking to, uh, you know, we got the trade deadline coming up. You, you know, kind of check in around the league, have a uh, couple of calls with um, uh, some of our players' agents on different topics. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, we, uh, I don't do a whole lot of media things and whatnot. Uh, uh, our coach really represents the team on a day-to-day -day basis. And then head over to the rink and watch our game tonight. We'll fly home at uh, – uh, we'll get in at uh, probably two o'clock. I'll uh, get up. Our team has a, a scheduled day off tomorrow. I'll head down to the office. I got some other 
just uh, internal uh, 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 within our hockey operations, things that I need to address. And, uh, and then, you know, again, be on the phone. You're just at this time of year, you're kind of going back and forth with other teams just on staying in the loop on the trade deadline as to what's going on that relates to your own team. And then go home and watch a game tomorrow night. How do you prepare for the trade deadline beyond just talking to GMs and talking to agents? Um, can you talk about how you get yourself prepared for that day? Or actually, it's it's several weeks. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. we're basically into the deadline right now. Sure. Yeah. What like it, for me, the trade deadline starts in in uh, in January when we all kind of within a one month or maybe you know yeah a month period sometime in early January to the end of January. Everybody would do their mid-season scouting meetings. And depending on where your team is at, um, you know, you're going to kind of create a plan out of that for the trade deadline for the second half of the season. And, you know, you talk about potentially other teams, uh, they're pending free agents, or you look at, at that time, kind of uh, potential trade options. But assess our team uh, in, in mid to late January and then start to make a plan for the trade deadline. Now, here we sit today with the Red Wings with a lot of games, you know, us, Buffalo, even Ottawa, I think, it, you know, we're not too far out of it, but we do have games in hand on some of the teams that we're relatively close on. Yep. So I think uh, I can't speak for those teams, but for us, it kind of, you know, like uh, a, a month ago, um, we weren't this close. You know, there was more teams uh, to jump over and you think, okay, like, let's plan for the deadline. And we, we just re-signed Ollie Matta, um, who was a pending free agent. Uh some of our free agents, we say, we'll try to get signed before the deadline. You know, some guys we still have interest in signing, and it may be after the deadline. I'm not sure. Um, but kind of, you know, prepare, see where your team is at and have a plan. And we try to do that. And then you spend that last few weeks, really, if you're, say, a buyer or a seller, you know, the buyers are out scouting the players they want to add. And uh, and then if you're a selling team, you're looking at the teams, whether it's draft picks, you're not necessarily scouting draft picks but you're out looking at other teams prospects or you're you got your your staff out there looking at other teams prospects so really depends on where you are and for us today we sit here we're kind of right in the middle and and we're gonna have to make some decisions uh uh you know in the next what are we next eight or nine days ultimately um we're still trying to build we're still trying to get better it wouldn't expect us to to go out and be trading like uh like our our best assets for for uh, rental players or anything like that. We wouldn't be opposed to making a trade, but it would be players we want to know that are a part of our future. And 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 doing that, that would require like, you know, ultimately giving up your 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 young assets. And we, you know, not opposed to doing that, but it's got to be somebody who's going to be here with us. So you kind of come up with a plan in January and depending on how your team's doing, you kind of adjust the plan. That's the way I do it anyway. So Brian Burke once famously said, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, what's the point of getting into the playoffs if you're going to be in eighth place and get swept out in four games in the first round? And the year he said it, L.A. was in eighth place in the West uh, and ended up winning the Cup. You're right. right. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Is it just to get in if you can get in and then anything can happen? Or are you thinking also about, well, how much value is it to get in but be in eighth place? Yeah, well, I think they're like one, we are running a business, you know, 
And so to grow, like, I think there's great value in making the playoffs. One, after the trade deadline, those games that you're playing at home from, from a, on a short-term business plan, um, there's great value. And after the deadline, those games being meaningful, you're playing these games that are must win games. You're going to get better TV ratings. You're going to get better walk-ups at your gate. Uh, so it, it is important for your revenues as a business. Having said that, I think you, you know, to me, you have to really analyze your team. And you mentioned those LA teams, surprisingly, they were, you know, maybe, maybe bubble teams to get in. I think twice they might've done it from the eight seed, got there and won the cup. I, uh, you know, Dean Lombardi was a GM of that. that. I, I, I couldn't tell you. You'd have to, maybe you've had him on the show, but I think our team is good. I think our team has a chance. Uh, I don't know what they did at the deadline, but they had some really good players that went on to win the cup. For me, you kind of analyze your team. You see where you're at. Um, uh, do we have a chance to make it? What, what are the, what's the cost of uh, improving our team to give us a better chance? I do believe there's great value in making the playoffs one from a business perspective, short term, but for long term is for your players, particularly your younger guys to get the experience, the more experience down the stretch, having these must win games, even to get in the playoffs, even if it's for the first time, that's a great experience. Uh, and then ultimately anything can happen again. I went down the, as my first year as a GM in Tampa, Alan, uh, is to 10, 11. And, um, you know, my whole plan at the start, I'm not trading any draft picks or anything like that. We're going to keep our guys. We got to the deadline and we were, we were in a playoff spot and we talked about it. Guy Boucher was our coach and, and, uh, talked about it, what, what our needs were. We're kind of close. Uh, maybe we can improve our team a little bit. We ended up giving up a third round pick for, to St. Louis for Eric Brewer. And Eric came in and played for us. We made the playoffs. Lo and behold, we played the Penguins in the first round. Uh, Sid's hurt. Uh, 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 Malkin's hurt. And we kind of came back in the series, won it in seven. Um, and um, uh, and then uh, we beat Washington in the second round. Next thing you know, we're in the third round. And my plan initially at the time was, you know, we're going to try and keep adding draft picks. It looks like for, you know, I think Tampa, my first year picked sixth or seventh. I said, you know, we'll probably be have another top 10 pick this year. Next thing you know, we're losing game seven of the semifinals. We're picking 27th in the first round. It was great for our organization. We, we you know, uh, one for the guys like Stammer and Hedman to get those experience, those young guys. Two, we, uh, the fan base was, you know, uh, uh, rejuvenated a little bit. Uh, you know, slowly was it, we're able to increase our, our fan base, our season ticket base for the next season. Uh, ultimately, we didn't make the playoffs next year, but, but, there was a lot of value in making that playoff for me. You know, I, we got a chance to make it here. It's going to be tough. There's good teams in, in the similar spot to us. Uh, ultimately we're still trying to build for, for the future to be given up high picks and things like that. I wouldn't want to, but if our team made the playoffs, nobody would say that was a bad thing for us really, you know, and regardless of what happened once you got in, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing. So when you were playing and when you first came into management in Detroit, uh, after retiring, really analytics didn't exist. Um, and now analytics is a huge part of uh, every team and the way teams are run. Every team has a robust analytics department with uh, several employees. Uh, and, and I'm not asking in any way for you to give away any... Um, uh, trade secrets or, uh, you know, violate national security regulations or anything like that at all. But what's your general philosophy and overview on analytics right now? Um, 
I, I truly think, you know, I'm reading a book right now called The MVP Machine. You might have read it. It's a, based on analytics in baseball or in baseball and, you know, the way they play, the way their teams were constructed. And it's really, really interesting. Um, I don't I think, you know, hockey and, you know, when I first got to Tampa, again, they had a small analytics department um, and really interesting guys. And that was all new to me. And I kind of picked their brain on it. Uh, and it was just really at the infant infant stages of of yep. it. Um, I think there's been a lot, like a lot has changed in the the last ten to twelve years. I still think hockey is in the infantile infant stages of of analytics. I think we're all still trying to figure out what's really important, what what has value, what doesn't have value in it, and and that it takes time to look back. You know, we, there's some statistics that have names that have been created based on shots on goal and things like that. They were all the rage a few years ago, uh, maybe not as much for teams now. So I think we're all trying to figure out how to use it. But the simple basics of, I think, in the business world, um, uh, they've been looking at things uh, data-wise, analytics-wise forever, um, whether it be contracts, player production, and things. Or, uh, uh, in hockey, now we've started, in sports, started to take all that data and just look at it subjectively uh, without even, you know, uh, or like factually as, as opposed to just watching the game and predicting this player is going to score this or that and uh, or he's worth this or that. You, you look at a lot of the data from on everything and it's being applied to hockey now. But I really do think based on what I've seen in baseball and what they're doing and some of the other sports, uh, um, we got to we're still trying to figure out what's got value. That's that's mm -hmm. really what I think. And it's but I do think it's important to, you know, we look with our eyes and our experience and all that you're you're you look at it from an analytic perspective, it forces you to reevaluate. Am I are, like, what is that? What does the data tell us? Um, does, is it, is it supporting what we're saying? Is it contradicting what we're seeing? And if so, why? But I, you know, again, uh, hockey is the NHL is getting in. We got the uh, puck tracking and player tracking on the ice. Um, you know, maybe some teams are way ahead. We're still trying to figure out what it, what it's telling us, you know? Um, and what we do with it. Now, one thing that's um, really unique with you, uh, maybe even now some more than uh, any other team, is uh, with many teams in contract negotiations, uh, the assistant GM has risen to the point where he's doing um, most of the negotiating with agents. And, um, and I know from personal experience with you, that you like to handle the negotiations yourself uh, with your NHL players. Why, why is that? Well, I would say like uh, Sean Horkoff, who's our assistant GM, with the help of Aaron Kahn our, our, and, and Brian Campbell, they'll do our, all, uh, our entry-level contracts and handle the, the minor league contracts. The, the majority of the deals, the, like, you know, vast majority of the deals with the Detroit Red Wings, with our, with our corp, with our group of players, I try to do them really honestly. I learned it from Kenny Holland. Uh, I was because I asked him that same question. Some teams have uh, a designated person who negotiates their contracts. Kenny always said to me, "I want the agent and the player, the the player, to know that that the message is coming directly from me. This is how I feel. These, this is, uh, you know, I, I, uh, that was his philosophy, and I tended to agree with that. I just felt like you know what, I, good or bad, I want the player to know that that. Uh, um, 
that I'm the one who's making the decision here. I'm the one who's offering my opinion from the other side. This is this is where you fit. Um, this is what I feel you're worth. These are the reasons why you feel you're worth. So I just, I, again, I learned that from Kenny and I've stuck with it. Uh, while I was in Tampa, you know, depending on where we were at, how busy we were, Julian Brisebois, who you know extremely well, he had a tremendous experience in contracts. Some, you know, I defer to him sometimes to let him handle some of them when we were uh, when we had a lot going on, so to speak. Or, or you know what, maybe maybe we're just real busy. You know, uh, you know how it is on on July one, things are happening quick, and uh, we'd kind of piecemeal it together and 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 get things done. Um, but but again, I learned it all from Kenny, and I felt like that was a good approach, and I tried to tried to stick with that in the majority of our deals. I still try to try to do, but it's with the support and the opinion and the fact checking and and research with my staff as well with with Brian, Sean, uh, and Aaron. Okay, Adam. Well, Steve, I, I've got a, a couple questions, uh, uh, and I think the the first one is um, you talked about the the nerves that come with running your own team, right? You were excited to run your own team. You thought. As a player, all oh, this has got to be a lot easier than it turned out to be. Do you remember your first trade? And I'm not talking about where you traded a draft pick. I mean, you mentioned the Eric Brewer trade. But where you're trading a person that you know is a valuable asset and you're taking a risk on an asset coming in. Do you remember that pressure? And do you remember that phone call? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, let me think here for a sec. I would start off by saying, you know, as as a the hardest part of the the job initially was you know, now you're in a position to make, you're the one who's making decisions, you know, as a hockey player on the team for my whole career, like you were like, all your decisions were made on the ice like that, you know, like instincts, you're playing the game, you practice and all that. You were prepared. The puck was dropped. You go, you made your decisions on the fly. And, but ultimately we like, we, we didn't make decisions. You, know, you were told what time practice was. You were told what day to report for training camp, what the, you know, what the schedule was there, what time the bus was, what time the plane was. And you just follow like a herd of cattle and you showed up and the coaches told you who you were playing with and they tap you on the shoulder when you're going on the ice and away you go. And now I'm retired and, and, uh, and now I'm like, I, I'm the GM and it's like, okay, guys, what are we doing? And everybody's looking at me as like, Guess what? You're the one who's deciding what we're doing. Like, I've never been in this position before. It was a real, real eye opener. And and I think for a lot of guys, the real challenge becomes is making decisions because we really haven't had to do it other than once the puck is dropped and they ask you why you did that, why you do that, what were you thinking on that play? And you go, I don't know. I just reacted. You know. Well, now as a GM, you're in that spot, and um, I, I think and it it, it it didn't really turn out, but my going way back was Brian Burke was awesome. Uh, you know, when I first, uh, uh, I think tr he was in Toronto at the time I was a GM of, uh, of, uh, in Tampa. And we were talking about, uh, there was kind of a deadline on a particular player with a no trade language or something like that. And, and talking with him, that was really my first negotiation on a trade, which, which didn't, didn't pan out, but, one, I'm dealing with Brian Burke, and for me, that was quite intimidating as a rookie. You know, uh, first year as a general manager, uh, I didn't know Brian really well. I knew him from a little bit from when he was working at the league, and some as, me as a player when he was handling. I think he was executive VP of the of hockey ops for the league, and and that was a real challenge in talking with him with it. And uh, um, 
actually like it, it was intimidating but he was really good and he's like hey steve i know i know this is the first kind of time you've talked about it you know this type of a deal a significant deal and i get it it kind of eased my nerves a little bit because i'm like i should i don't really know what i'm doing here <laughs> like i don't know if i should do this shouldn't do this what like what is good i don't know i'm trying to uh, not trying to you know give the the other GM the runaround, but that was my first time. I don't want to get into the specifics of the the players and whatnot we were talking about, but that was the first time, and that was even before the season started, if I recall. And it was it was quite nerve wracking, and uh, um, ultimately, but he he you know he said, "Hey, I get it, Steve. I like I've been in this spot a long time ago, so it eased my nerves a little bit." And I never really early on, I never made any major deals. Um, I don't think that involved really big big name players or anything like that. Um, you know, um, uh, as things went along, I, I think my, my first, you know, when I traded like first round picks might've been with a, a deal with Philadelphia, uh, Braden Colburn. And we, you know, we gave up uh, Radko Gudis and a first round pick. That was my first one. And trading first round picks for me was kind of like a, kind of like a, no, I don't, I'm not doing that. I won't ever do that. And then, and that was the first time I kind of wrapped my head. I think we might have had two picks that year that made it a little bit easier. Um, but I always had in my head, I'm never going to give up those high picks ever. And ultimately we did. I think Braden had two years on his deal. It's kind of how I justified it to myself is I got him for more than one playoff run. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I just can't imagine the pressure. And I, I think the other th- the other question I had is you mentioned working out before, uh, uh, before um, every day if you can. And, uh, you know, that Alan's seen about 500 Bruce Springsteen concerts. Um, so I'm assuming that when Alan works out, his playlist is exclusively Bruce, but I was curious about what Steve Eiserman's Spotify personal playlist might be when you're working out in the morning. Well, it would, uh, ironically, um, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. My first, uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen concert was I think in 1979 at the Ottawa civic center. Right when the River right. album first came out, yep. I went with my buddies Darren Pang and I, and some of were playing Tier Two in the PN, and saw Bruce at the at the, at the Ottawa Civic Center. Um, uh, I've probably seen him a half dozen times, not as many as uh, as Alan, but uh, generally, <laughs> one I don't have a Spotify account. Uh, I'm not technically savvy enough to do it, so if I use it, I borrow one of my kids' accounts, and as you can imagine, they listen to a lot different music than I do. So, but in general, I'll put on, if I am listening to anything, I'll put on, uh, on, uh, uh, I would listen to U2. Okay. Um, anything. And yeah, pretty much all U2, a shuffle of, uh, of all their albums. Love Are you uh, going to Bruce March 29th in Detroit? Uh, possibly. I mentioned it to my wife. I got to check our schedule to see where we are. I think we're at home. Um, you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing, I saw him in, in, uh, in 1984, in the summer of 84, at Joe Louis Arena, yeah. uh, I believe I saw him at the Palace, saw him at the Silverdome, which is no longer there, um, saw him at the Fox Theater when he, uh, uh, the Ghost of Tom Joad tour, I think it was, when yeah, he was just acoustic. playing an acoustic set, saw him yep. there. So at LCA would kind of be another uh, another opportunity. You know, it's ironic. I used to, uh, his daughter's a you know, uh, a world-class show jumper on horses and, uh, Olympia actually it was in, in DC here. Uh, there's this big show. My daughter was in ponies at the time, maybe 10 years ago or yeah, actually 15 years ago, I think. Um, <laughs> and she had qualified for this show. Uh, it's a national show and they did it at, uh, 
at the, uh, well, it was the MCI Verizon Center. I don't even know what it's called now, Capital One Center, but in the arena, and it was in, uh, I think in November, they literally have the horse show on the ice surface, take the ice out, do the horse show. Well, lo and behold, like Bruce is there watching his daughter. He's leaning over the the rail and I'm right there. And I'm like, I got to go talk to him because he used to go to the Ranger games a lot. I don't know if he still does, but uh, I'm like, I just couldn't work up the nerve to go talk to him and, uh, and, and whatnot. But it was pretty cool. He's just sitting there minding his own business, watching his daughter ride her horse. It's pretty amazing. But I kind of grew up with him, you know, and uh, uh, so I might have to check that show out if I can. Yeah. Especially since it's in your building. Yeah. Right. And it is a yeah. fantastic building. Uh, I saw Kid Rock there when they first opened it, uh, and it was a tremendous show. It is a good building for concerts. Um, acoustics are great. The vibe in the arena is really good. So uh, it's been a while since I've seen them, uh, at least live, so might have to put it on the schedule. You, you got any hookups for tickets at the building? or? Uh... <laughs> I, I hope I can get in, right? <laughs> be, I may not get great seats, but I'll get in the building. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so let, let me, let me ask you, let's, let's go back to hockey. Although I love talking about Bruce as everyone knows, um, what, what motivated you to, to leave Detroit and go to Tampa when you did? And I think at the time, if I remember, there were a couple of other opportunities, uh, with other teams as well. What made you choose Tampa over anywhere else? Um, a little bit of it was timing. Um, you know, I had done, I had worked with uh, uh, the Olympic team. I had worked with T- Hockey Canada, the 07, uh, 07 World Champions through the 2010 Olympics. Um, and and after the Olympics, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't really sure what my plan was going to be. I debated, do I want to be, you know, do I ultimately, do I want to be a GM? It was pretty clear in my eyes, like, if I, if I want to be a GM, I'm probably going to have to leave Detroit. Kenny, the team was rolling. They won the cup in, uh, was it 08? They won the cup. Jimmy Nill was, you know, uh, you know, in my eyes, uh, and deservedly so, if, if Kenny moved up or retired, Jimmy Nill would step into to the role as GM. And I felt like whatever I was as 40-something years old at the time, if I want to do it, I'm going to have to start to move on. So after the Olympics in 2010, I thought seriously about it. Um, and then uh, uh, ultimately, I, I, I was interviewed, met, met and was interviewed by Jeff Finnick. And, and the more I talked with them, um, the more engaged I got or the more interested I got. I was intrigued. He was very, uh, like, very down to earth. And I enjoyed speaking with him and his vision for the team and, and then ultimately I looked at it and say, okay, that's a pretty good job. Like I understand the, the owner's vision and, and you had Stamkos and Hedman as the, you know, first and second overall picks. I'm like, Hey, that's a good opportunity there to, to build off of those two guys. So um, a lot of it was timing for me at that time. And I wasn't really sure. It's like, maybe I wait, maybe I go and then, and then say, you know what, like, I don't know if these opportunities are going to come along or where they're going to come from. So started to make sense for me and uh and then ultimately uh was offered the job and accepted it but um you know again a lot of these things are timing wise and um you know i was really it was a wonderful experience uh uh uh, jeff vinnick is is fantastic for our league has been as you know fantastic for 
the, the, the lightning organization and the community, what, what he's done down there is incredible. And then, you know what, Tampa's a really neat little market down there. I say little, like a, I kind of consider it somewhat of a small city. It's got, you know, tremendous population around it, but you've had players that have played there and, uh, proved to be a, like a, just a, a great spot, very different than a Vegas or a Miami or whatnot, but a great community that I really enjoyed being down there and being a part of it. I think so many people who live in that part of Florida uh, come from uh, the East Coast or come from the Midwest and have yeah. moved down. So they have the hockey pedigree. Maybe they played hockey. They certainly were fans of hockey. And they come down to Tampa. The team is young, exciting, building, getting better, having some success right away. Um, you know, and then, of course, the, the the two runs. I don't think that hockey was as foreign as it may have been to some of the other markets. Yeah, I would agree. There is a lot, like a lot of Midwestern people in on that coast. You know, I think they, they basically you can drive right down seventy five from from Detroit right yeah. right through uh, Tampa. You know, and there's a lot of Midwesterners there. The other thing that's helped really grow the game down there is uh, a lot of a lot of retired players. Um, down whether it's in uh, Tampa, Fort Myers, down the Miami area, they've had young kids um, uh, playing hockey. They've got involved in developing the programs, and they're running very successful programs. So um, that the game is growing down there. They've built more arenas, more kids are playing, and and you're seeing kids, as you know, drafted out of out of uh, not only Florida but some of the other markets as well, like uh, non traditional markets in the U.S. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's worked out really well down there. Um, uh, you got a lot more kids playing and good hockey players. And um, but yeah, it's amazing. Like uh, like I go to go down there and wor work down there. Like nobody knew or could care less who I was. Um, and I worked for the Lightning. The only time I ever got recognized was was when somebody was from Michigan and say, "Hey, I'm from Michigan. Aren't you Iserman?" And I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> did did you did you like that? The fact that you could live in in a lot more anonymity than you probably could walking uh, the streets of uh, of Michigan. Uh, you know, like well, actually, I got pretty good anon anonymity in in Michigan as well. But uh, uh, you know what? It, honestly, like as to be the general manager of a team, like you know, like the big markets are unreal. It's great, but there's a lot of lot more scrutiny uh, on on every decision you make. You know, so. In, in, in some of them, and it probably is the same for the players as well, um, is, is there's, there's less scrutiny. It's probably easier to do your job a little bit in, in some of the non-traditional, it's not of the, the big, huge hockey markets that have, you know, the original six markets and things. I think it's a little, you know, there's not as much media involved. Um, and that's good and bad, but just, it'll, you know, uh, there's not as much scrutiny. It allows you to kind of do your job, be a little bit more patient maybe in things and not feel the, 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 the pressure as much in those types of markets. Yeah. Adam, Steve, I, I want to ask you about, uh, about Alan. Um, when Alan Walsh comes up on your caller ID, um, are you, uh, are you, are you nervous? Are you anxious? Is it going to be a good time? Like, is there a, uh, is there, you know, what, what are your conversations usually like and what's it like to negotiate with Alan? You know what? Like I, we we talk pretty regularly. I would say, Alan. I don't know how much you talk to other GMs and all that, but I think over the course of 
you know, I, I started in 2010. Um, I remember the first player we talked about was Sean Bergenheim. Remember, Alan? Um, um, you know, at the time, that was back in 2000 and uh, was that 2000 and summer of 2010, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then over time, we've had a lot of different, uh, uh, we haven't done necessarily a ton of contracts, um, but we've had tons of discussion. You know, uh, Alan represents, represented Jonathan Drouin, who was a high draft pick of ours. And, and we, you know, going from, you know, the time of the draft throughout his time in Tampa, we had a lot of good discussions. And I'd like to think that we've gotten to know each other really well. Um, uh, I think Alan feels very, very comfortable in good or bad expressing his, his, uh, Thoughts on a situation, um, I can say, I, I say, you know, I've come to understand not only Alan, but where all the agents are coming from. And, 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 and that's a good thing. And that ultimately the, the really good agents really care about their players. And, and, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to come to me on the best behalf of their player. Um, and sometimes it's, it's not always positive. It can't be, always, unfortunately it isn't always positive. And, so I think Alan feels comfortable in being real honest with me, good or bad. Um, he works hard for his players, and I've come to appreciate that. And so every time he calls, I, I, you know, sometimes it might be just social on things we talk about, what's going on. Not only maybe it's in hockey, maybe it's completely different. And uh, so I, uh, I enjoy our conversations, and I, I hope, <laughs> I hope he feels the same. But I think over time, you 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 develop a good relationship. You know, when I first started in the business, it was. Always to me, like, and I think it's coming from a former player's background. Everything's a competition. Every trade you're trying to negotiate, you're trying to win. Every contract you're trying to win, you know. And it's like over time, I've learned, you know what? That's not the way you operate. One, you're never going to get anything done. And two, like, you have to take, uh, you know, look at the other side's perspective. What are they trying to accomplish? What's important to them? And see if you can come to a common ground. So, uh, we've had some a lot of good experiences, and, and truthfully, I say that I've learned a lot from guys like Alan because I can pick their brain, I can ask them questions, I can get their viewpoint on things, and I do learn a lot. And I'm, it's amazing. Like uh, I was so smart when I retired, and I was this you know smartest guy in hockey. And then I'm a GM, and I realized I have no clue what I'm doing, really, honestly. And to this day. I'm not so sure I, I even know what I'm doing. So I like to talk to the people in the business and hear their perspectives and, and thoughts on things. Even, you know, we talk a lot about our CBA and, and our league and the pros and the cons, what's good and bad. And, and, you know, you think, you know, and it's like, Hey, you know what, Alan or this person, they brought up a really good point and they see it different than me. And, and that's very interesting. So I'm learning to, to appreciate not only the, the agents in the business, but the, all the other people in the business, because they see things different from me, and I'm I'm trying to learn. Alan, same question. Yeah, I would say that in 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 working with Steve over the years, uh, you can't always agree. Hmm. Uh, and when you when you disagree, it's it and both sides are expressing um, their sincere positions on an issue. The one thing you can always count on from Steve is that he's always going to present it in an honest way. Hmm. And and I've always said, I'm okay hearing things that I don't like. And, 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 and Steve is certainly okay hearing things he may not like. But if it's coming from a place of sincere honesty, you can respect the position 
and really think about it. And, and many times I've heard things, um, you know, sometimes in discussions with Steve where I come away from a conversation and I start really thinking about what he said. And, and I'm like, you know, there's a lot of truth to what was just said there. And, and it's that, um, uh, willingness to go into, um, the arguments made sometimes on a contrary side to the side you may be on and breaking down the arguments and the position and seeing where it's coming from and not just um, from a, 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 a gut position saying, no, I, I, I don't agree with that and I'm not even going to think about that and I'm not going to analyze it and I'm not going to look at it and being very close-minded really doesn't get you anywhere. Mm. And and I, I've never had a negotiation um, end where I've started. So at some point along the way, um, y- you're, you're either going to be um, someone who can't get a deal done or you're going to be a deal maker and understand that to get the deal done, any deal, there needs to be flexibility and there needs to be a willingness to really look at what the other side is saying. And with Steve, you always get his honest assessment of where things are at. And that's all you can ask for. I love that. I love that. Go ahead, Steve. It looks like you were going to say something there. No, no, no. I did. Again, I was just going to say, like, again, I've learned over time is, you know what, you got to like, Whatever it is, you got to, you know, I used to, when you're younger, like you want to fly off the handle all the time and, uh, and get mad and argue. And, and then it's like, you know what, just listen, think about it, hear the other side and, and then see if you can, again, whether it's with an agent or with a, with another team, you're trying to make a trade or all these things, you kind of, you learn to try to get things done. And then ultimately, sometimes there isn't a deal to be made. It's just whether there's not a fit or there's simply, uh, you know, you just disagree and then ultimately you find another solution for it, whatever it is. But uh, ultimately, again, like we work together, we're working together. Generally, we want the same thing, you know, and that's we want the player to be happy. We want him to do well. And then, you know, sometimes it just there's not a fit for different reasons. But again, I've learned a lot over time and and how to how to, you know, again, I think the good GMs around the league, they listen, they're calm, they're rational, they don't fly off the handle and Again, being being a former player, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> you know, it's like this ain't gonna work. I'm not gonna last long in this, whether it was with the league or with the agents or with other teams. This approach, ain't, I'm not gonna one, I'm driving myself crazy, let alone everybody else in the business. So uh just learn a lot. And uh again, we you know, we we have great discussions on things and uh uh so I always enjoy the conversation. So Steve, you you built up Tampa to where it was a a legitimate threat to win the cup and a consistent contender. And, and then you left and went back to Detroit. What motivated you to do that and the timing of it? Well, really the timing of, of it was, um, you know, it really was mostly like for my, my family, my kids, when I went to Tampa, 
our plan. We debated at the time. I had teenagers going into high school, one finishing high school, one going in. And, and say, you know, initially it was, you know, we were going to move everybody. And then we decided with our first daughter to you know, get her through high school. And then each year was kind of putting, figuring it out family-wise for it to work. And uh, ultimately my family stayed in Detroit. My kids went off to college and things. And uh, I, I, my wife's, you know, had home base was there uh, for, the, for the girls. And then, uh, um, you know, after a while, I was getting a little bit tired I, and I was neglecting. I, our minor league team was in Syracuse. Uh, the, obviously, the team was in Tampa and, and my home life was in Detroit. And I, was, I felt like I was to do the job the way I really, really wanted to do it. It was like, you know what, I, 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 something's got to change here. And, and ultimately, I made a decision to go back to Detroit because what I felt was best for my family and, and, uh, and then best for, for Tampa. Like, I can't, can't half-ass, pardon my language, do this job half-ass. I got to be in Syracuse. I got to be in Tampa. I got to be on the road with Tampa. You need to be there. I had great staff. Julian, as you know, Alan, is top, top shelf. Um, John Cooper was a great coach, but if you're in charge, you got to be there because uh, there's a lot of different perspectives, and you can have the same situation. Uh, and you hear the player side, the coach's side, you hear everybody's side, and somewhere in the middle, you got to figure out what exactly is going on, and you have to be there for that, you know. So uh, I just felt like I wasn't doing the job that the way it needed to be, and if I can't do it the way I need to be, I. Uh, uh, I got to make a decision, and that's why I, I went back to Detroit. Hmm. Well, listen, Steve, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time, um, and I really appreciate you coming on and being as forthright and sharing some of the stories that you have. It's been a great privilege for for us to have you here, and I want to thank you. No, my pleasure. Enjoy talking as always, Alan. Adam, nice meeting you, Jesse. Guys, I enjoy talking hockey. It's it's always a lot of fun. Like I, I jokingly say, like, Sally, I ain't got much else uh, to offer anybody other than hockey. <laughs> I wish I had more interesting things to talk about. But nonetheless, uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, I'll see you at Bruce on March 29th in Detroit. Are you, are you going to Detroit for that? Oh, yeah. Oh, Good. Yeah. yeah, I'll let yeah. you know if I'm going to go, too. Again, I'm not sure where, what our schedule is, but obviously we're not playing at home that <laughs> This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. By Sports Interaction. Wanna bet? Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 